Welcome to Illinois Family Spotlight, a conversation about issues of the day from a biblical perspective, as well as highlights from interviews, conferences, and events. Here's Monty Larrick. Thanks for making Illinois Family Spotlight part of your day. During this edition of Spotlight, an address from Doug Wilson, the pastor of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, and a senior fellow of theology at New St. Andrew College in Moscow. He's written several thought-provoking books, including Rules for Reformers, and he's one of the editors of the popular homeschooling Omnibus series, Doug Wilson, and Sanity as Insurrection from the IFI Worldview Conference at Stone Church in Orland Park. In one of those uh, famous Orwell quotes that Orwell apparently didn't say, the sentiment is noble anyhow. Quote, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Not only so, but in my lexical research into this subject, not only did I discover that Orwell didn't say it, I also discovered that a lot of leftists apparently like to quote him saying it anyhow. This kind of figures, even though if the, tr if the truth were their hinder parts, they wouldn't be able to find it, not even if they were allowed to use both hands. <laughs> I will grant that they know a little bit more about universal deceit, and in fact are quite proficient when it comes to that particular subject, but we're just going to have to leave that there. Regardless, the Orwell observation is true. The Orwell observation is true, whoever came up with it. But when it comes to the simple idea of telling the truth, I have to tell you that our culture passed that exit some time ago. We don't just need to recover the practice of telling the truth, we need to recover a universe in which telling the truth is an actual possibility. We no longer inhabit a world in which lies occur, which has always been the case. From the Garden of Eden down, we've lived in a world in which lies occur. We now inhabit an, an imaginary world constructed entirely out of lies and all the frayed endings of our carnal bundle are starting to snap. And this is why we are going to win, incidentally. I want to bring you a message, a message of encouragement. We're not just right, we're not just correct, we're going to win. And this is why we're going to win, even though currently we appear to be losing badly. In the long run, the visiting speaker said encouragingly, stupidity never works. How could it? I mean, think about it. How could it? How could you have an engineering department that determined that all projects from this point on are going to be assembled nuts with nuts and bolts with bolts? <laughs> so, here's the thing. When you're being outsmarted, which we are currently, but that's not the big picture, that's not the long run, we're currently being outmaneuvered, outsmarted, every day is a new uh, bit of bad news, what about in the meantime? What are we supposed to do in the meantime? When you're playing against a grand chess master and you're at about the learning level that has barely figured out that the knight moves in an L shape, you're going to undergo a number of strange and novel sensations as you play that game of chess. And as they happen to you, one of the things that will be invisible to you is how they were actually happening to you three moves before that with every piece visible on the board and with you unable to see the connection between what he just did and what happened three moves after that. This is because before he was thinking mate, he was thinking something like mate in three. In other words, every time we turn around, we appear that they're there ahead of us. They're, they've anticipated this. Why all of a sudden is common sense hatred? 
When, when did that happen? Well, it happened back in the 1980s. They're playing the long game on this. We have to learn how to read the chessboard. We have to learn how to anticipate what's coming. And we have to learn how to flip it around so that they are unable to anticipate what's coming from us. So what I want to do is I want to provide you with a handful, seven to be precise, I want to provide you with a handful of theological or intellectual life hacks, such that when you get these down, you will be able to see what is going on around you. Not just, oh, I'm in trouble right now, but what happened three moves before. I want you to be able to see what's going on around you. As a result, you will consequently see that the insanity of our times actually has a certain perverse logic to it. The news is going to start to make sense to you, and your family will start to worry about you. When you start to see, you will become a threat. When you start to see, you will become a threat, which is the meaning behind my cryptic title for this talk, Sanity as Insurrection. If I might modify Orwell's observation somewhat, here it is. In a world gone mad, deliberate and premeditated sanity is a challenge to the powers that be. Let me say that again. In a world gone mad, deliberate and premeditated sanity, you might call it sanity on purpose, is a challenge to the powers that be. They will certainly take it as such. They will take it as a direct challenge, and they will most certainly come after you. That is perhaps why more people don't do this, incidentally. The bad guys know how to fight dirty. They lie, and they maim, and they bite, and it's venomous. One of the things that we have to learn how to do is this. He who would be thought sane should learn how to ask sane questions. And sane questions are simple ones. Sane questions go right to the heart of the matter. And they're not the kind of questions that you learn uh, after three years in graduate school. These are questions that every kid on the playground knows. I'll get to them in a minute. As we debate with our fellow citizens, we must insist on the fact of the debate, and we must do it by means of sane questions. We must insist that both sides define their terms, that both sides outline their proposals, and that both sides answer all the questions. But the left does not want to win the debate. The left does not want to win the debate. The left wants to avoid the debate, or sidestep the debate, or shut down the debate, or outlaw the debate. They do not want the debate. And the reason they don't want the debate is they can't win one. Right? An honest engagement of ideas, head to head, without politics, without coercion in the wings, they can't handle that. So, persevere. Here are the basic sane questions. When it comes to our political life together, the two great questions of philosophy can be found on playgrounds everywhere. They are, why and who says? There you go. <laughs> life makes sense. It all swims into focus. Insert those two questions into everything. Why and who says? So, broaden things out a bit. I'm going to give you some life hacks, intellectual theological hacks, and I said there are seven of them. These seven concepts I'm going to walk through with you are concepts that will quite obviously have areas of overlap. They are not sealed off from one another in watertight compartments. Nevertheless, they are distinct enough for me to mention each one separately, and you should be able to learn how to handle them separately because they will sometimes come up discreetly in separate conversations. I want to mention each one of them at the top. I'll run through the table of contents and then briefly work through them with illustrations, word pictures, metaphors, the works. So here they are, and in no particular order. One, endowed by their creator. Two, the creator-creature divide. Three, the correspondence view of truth. Four, inescapable concepts. Five, culture is upstream from politics, and religion is upstream from culture. Six, 
education is inescapably religious. And seven, there is no virtue or vice in a transitive verb. Endowed by the creator, creator-creature divide, correspondence view of truth, inescapable concepts, cultures upstream from politics and religion upstream from culture. Six, education is inescapably religious. And seven, there's no virtue or vice in a transitive verb. So let's start with the first one, endowed by the creator. We do not want to take the name of the Lord our God in vain, the way some blasphemer might do. But neither do we want to invoke his name when not seriously thinking about him, the way insurance companies will call a tornado an act of God. What do I mean? We like to speak of our God-given rights. And that phrase rolls off the tongue, our God-given rights. The phrase just naturally happens. But take God away. Take away an actual creator, like in a doctrine of creation, as in Genesis 1 creation. Take away an actual creator and watch what happens. In a materialistic cosmos, with all of us being the end product of time and chance acting on matter, the concept of human rights becomes a manifest absurdity. It's just that simple. Genesis 1, human rights follow. Deny Genesis 1, human rights are a joke. The removal of God from the system has been done gradually in order not to spook the prisoners. We started with God-given rights. Declaration of Independence, they are endowed with, by their creator with certain inalienable rights. We started with God-given rights. We started with God-given rights that were a theological construct, right? Human rights are theology. That's a theological statement. We started with God-given rights. They first took God away and left supposedly, scare quotes, self-evident rights. Several decades later, they put square, scare quotes around the rights. Slowly and entirely predictably, our rights from God have been turned into privileges from the government. Right, God-given rights have been transformed. All, right, all this transgender stuff, that's downstream from what was happening earlier. God-given rights turned into privileges from the government. And they say, yes, but we're a nice government. Well, you're pretending to be nice now, and we should just call it what it is, totalitolerance. Totalitolerance. And what the government bestows, the government can at some point decide to not bestow anymore. What the government bestows the government can determine not to bestow. The state giveth, the state taketh away, and blessed be the name of the state. If there is no God over the state, the state's here, if there is no God over the state, outside the realm of the state, out of the complete reach of the state, then the state is God. Say that again. If there is no God over the state, the state is God. Secularism appeared to work for a time in a society that still had large amounts of Christian moral capital in it. Let me say that again. Secularism appeared to work because we had a lot of residual Christianity that was woven into our culture. Secularism worked for the same reason that the prodigal son was able to buy drinks for his friends for the first few weeks. When that moral capital is gone, as it is gone from us now, right? we're now the prodigal son staring at the pig food. When that moral capital is gone, as it is gone from us now, the idea of a secularism that respects human rights or even understands them is an almost complete absurdity. So that phrase from the Declaration, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, is not a quaint way of saying that the founders hoped that we might have a nice day. A right understanding of this issue is absolutely essential to human liberty, and a right understanding of it is rare. You should see where this goes. Stephen Hawking once put it very memorably, quote, the human race 
is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet. Let that sink in. The human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet. Now, let me ask you, and you don't have to be a deep thinker to give an intelligent answer to this. Do you think that a sentiment like that might have any political ramifications? Yes. Yes, it does. And you see them all around you. Those ramifications, the ramifications of you being just a little bit of scum on a moderate-sized planet, the ramifications of that sentiment are politically in evidence everywhere you look. So that's number one. God-given rights, endowed by the Creator. Endowed by the Creator. Human rights are high-octane theology. If you want to talk about human rights at all, you are talking deep theology. Second, the Creator-Creature divide. This leads to the next point, which is that the living God, the Creator, is not contained within the system. God is transcendent, and His attributes are not subject to amendments or alterations. He is utterly out of our reach, utterly. We cannot hold a referendum that might fix him or his opinions. There is an infinite divide, an infinite divide between the creator and the realm of his creation. The implications of this are plain. It means that the standards of morality, including every form of political morality, are not grounded on anything down here. They are grounded in the immutable character of the transcendent God. Righteousness is not on the ballot, but is rather woven into the very fabric of creation. We don't get to redefine anything in that respect. Now, you, you know the catechism. The secularists demand that any, but anybody who comes from any kind of moderately conservative church background running for office, Senator Snotworst, uh, you belong to this conservative XYZ denomination. What do you say about how you're going to allow your religious beliefs to influence uh, your behavior in Washington? Do you know the answer? What, what's the expected answer to that question? Senator Snotworst, who knows the drill, will say, my personal religious beliefs, which are very precious to me. Precious. Where? Down in my heart. They're very precious to me. I, I'm not going to allow my personal religious beliefs to influence in any way my behavior if I'm re-elected to office in Washington. I've been waiting, dying for Senator Snotworst or someone like him to then, three weeks after the election, be caught speeding in Washington, D.C. with a couple of floozies, $10,000 in the trunk, and a bunch of cocaine in the back seat in a red convertible. And watched the news conference afterwards where he said, look, I solemnly promised the American people that I would not let my personal <laughs> religious convictions, which are, which are very precious to me, influence my behavior in any way whatsoever when I got to Washington, D.C. And I'm here today to tell you that I've kept my word to the American people. This is schizophrenia. We, we ask our politicians who come from some sort of church background, is, do you pro solemnly promise to be schizophrenic if you're elected? And then, lo, what do we get? So, this is, righteousness is woven into the created order. This is the difference between, as one theologian put it, one-ism and two-ism. One-ism holds that there's only one fabric of reality, and as emergent evolution governs what happens in this, this great ocean of stuff floating around, anything can turn into anything else. Give it enough time, shoot enough hormones into it, and call it good. Call it whatever you want to. If there is no God, if there is no transcendent creator God over all, and everything that exists is simply time and chance acting on matter, what is the direct implication of this. It is that anything can turn into anything else, right? 
Anything can turn into anything else. So what's your deal with the sex change operation? What's your deal with people aspiring to be if a sea lion and a little yellow canary are blood cousins, if they're related to each other, why can't a boy be a girl? Why can't we just mess around with all this stuff? But with twoism, in the beginning, there was God. And God said, let there be not God. And there was not God. And behold, it was very good. So God creates, and the eternal creator creates something that is contingent, not eternal like he is. It's separate from him, separated from him by an infinite distance, and we are part of that created order, and it is good. Now, what this means is that the not God part of this reality is contingent, and its nature is utterly dependent upon the will of the God who made it. The thing that exasperates the ardent secularist is that all of the permanent things are not up for discussion. God created nature in the way that he did, and he did so in a way that ensures that nature and the things within nature have a fixed nature. It does not matter how you identify yourself. It just does, it doesn't matter. The will that determined that you would be born a boy or a girl is the will of the infinite personal God. And he willed this particular sex for this particular child before all worlds. Before there was one atom of the material creation in existence, he looked at you and he looked at me and he assigned our sex to each one of us. And this is something that was determined by the infinite, loving, eternal God before there was a material creation. It has nothing to do with how we feel about it. Nothing whatever can be done that will undo this. In our rebellion, and that too within his governing sovereignty, we can deface what he has done we can vandalize what he has done. We can put a dress on it. We can put lipstick on it. We can vandalize the image, but we cannot erase the image of God. We can vandalize the image of God in our sin and rebellion, but we cannot erase the image of God. So that's the second thing. There's an infinite gulf. There's a creator-creature divide. This is Illinois Family Spotlight. We'll continue with Pastor Doug Wilson's address from the IFI Worldview Conference after this. America's chaplain faces jail time for the crime of being an American. Chaplain Stephen Lee tells his story 7 p.m. Tuesday, January 9th at the Church of Christian Liberty in Arlington Heights. Find out more at IllinoisFamily.org. We're going to fight this thing. This is bigger than me. Chaplain Lee provided pastoral care in the wake of natural disasters, 9-11, Columbine, and when 2020 election fraud charges surfaced in Georgia, he was there to offer spiritual help and guidance. But a left-wing prosecutor wants to silence him. This transcends politics, things like faith, family, and freedom. Help Chaplain Lee fight for freedom. Join him 7 p.m. Tuesday, January 9th at the Church of Christian Liberty in Arlington Heights. Find out more at IllinoisFamily.org. Go to IllinoisFamily.org. With a one-minute look at culture from a Christian worldview, I'm John Stone Street with The Point. Christian faithfulness, especially at a time of cultural chaos, isn't really about trying to do great things for God. In a tweet, my friend Katie Faust of Them Before Us explained, quote, Afraid for the nation? Buy a house, plant a garden, get married, have lots of babies, help your children marry well, be great grandparents. You needn't run for office, start a podcast, or lead a think tank. The most powerful and countercultural work happens at home. 
Amen. She then cited Jeremiah 29, in which God told the exiles of Judah to build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce. Look, it can be easy to equate greatness with fame or with the number of followers or with doing something loud or something big. What God asks for is faithfulness and whatever our hand finds to do and in the commitments that we have made in his name. That was true for the exiles in Babylon, and it's just as true for Christians in a chaotic cultural moment today. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stone Street. This is Illinois Family Spotlight. During this edition, we're presenting an address that Doug Wilson gave from the IFI Worldview Conference at Stone Church in Orland Park. Pastor Wilson is a theologian, commentator, and author, and will pick up on point three of his message entitled, The Sanity of Insurrection. Because God is truth itself, and because God is immutable, meaning he cannot change, this means that we must hold to what the philosophers call the correspondence view of truth. When I say lectern, when I say the word lectern, like this here, there's a correspondence between that word, lectern, and the actual lectern out here in the world. So when I say that the lectern is made of metal, this is a truth, truth claim that can be investigated. And we can put a T for true or an F for false next to that truth claim. And as the declarative sentence, as a proposition, it must be either true or false. So if I say this lectern is metal, T. If I say this lectern is wood, F. All right, it's a declarative sentence. And my sentence has a certain meaning, and then it, that meaning corresponds to the way things are out in the world. That's the correspondence view of truth. Whether it is true or false has absolutely nothing to do with anybody's feelings. Doesn't care. Lectern doesn't care. This correspondence view is in contrast to the coherence view of truth, which holds that a true story merely has to be internally consistent. Provided you can, with a straight face, say something like, that's my story and I'm sticking to it, we have to give you a pass. And we will give you a hard pass if you get offended that anyone has the temerity to question your story. Now, if some of you are wondering why the, why the fine folks at the Illinois Family Institute signed you up for a philosophy lecture, <laughs> when you thought you were going to get a fire eater from Idaho, let me make this relevant to you in this way. This is exactly what you were up against whenever you object to letting Bruno shower in the junior high girls' locker room. This is what you're up against. It's the correspondence view of truth. You think, in your old stuck-in-the-mud ways, you think that there must be a correspondence between what he actually is and what he says he is. He says, I'm a girl, and you think that there has to be a correspondence between him saying, I'm a girl, and him actually being a girl. Sorry, that's not, what, that's not how they're running it these days. You think there has to be a correspondence. He maintains that he is whatever he says he is. That's his story, and he's sticking to it. So whenever you hear anybody say anything like, well, that's true for you, but not for me, you know you're in the middle of this particular confusion. When anybody says, that's true for you, but not for me, you should say, is it true on Thursday, but not on Tuesday? Is it true on Friday, not on Monday? Is it true a thousand years ago and not true a hundred years from now? No. Christians, believers, believe there's a correspondence between the language that God gave us to communicate about the world and the facts on the ground in the world itself. 
Because God created the world, because God created the world as distinct from himself, and because he created it in a way consistent with his own nature and character, thereby requiring the correspondence view of truth, this means that the world runs in particular and predictable patterns. And this is related to the next point, which is that of inescapable concepts. Frame it this way. This is what I mean by inescapable concepts. Not whether, but which. Not whether, but which. Now, let me take one example of this, from, and there are many, many examples of how this works. Here's just one. Say that you're advocating for the rights of the unborn, and someone says to us that, quote, we are just trying to impose our morality on everybody else. Your response should not be to deny that. Of course you are. Law is imposed morality. All law is the imposition of morality. That's what it is. You're trying to impose morality in just the same way that they impose morality. It's not whether, but which. It's not whether we impose morality, but rather which morality we impose. It's not whether we impose morality, it's which morality we impose, and why. So if, we're, if all law of necessity is imposed morality, then what should we want? We should want the morality that's imposed to be the right one. We shouldn't want, oh, whatever morality you want. Shall we impose, here's the, and here's the basic question, question on the life issue, shall we impose the morality of scripture and natural law on the doctor and on the mother? Yes. That's what I'm doing. That's, that's why this is a law. I'm, we're proposing this law that you don't agree with it, doctor doesn't agree with it, mom doesn't agree with it, and all those legislators over there don't agree with it, and I want to pass it anyway because this is moral and I want to impose morality. And they say, this is America. How can you impose morality? Well, here's the problem. Either we impose morality on the doctor and the mother, or the doctor and the mother impose their secular and relativistic morality on the baby. That's the only choice you have. Regardless of what happens, at the end of the day, someone's morality is going to be imposed on someone else. That's inescapable. That's an inescapable concept. So, Shall we impose a godly morality on the doctor and on the mother, or shall the doctor and the mother impose an ungodly morality on the child? But someone is going to be imposed on. This is inescapable, and apologizing for the mere fact of it is like apologizing for gravity. Of course we're going to have our laws be imposed morality. If you have a law against stealing bicycles, that's Ten Commandments right off of Mount Sinai, right? Of course we want our laws to be imposed morality. The only alternative to imposed morality because all laws are an imposed something, is imposed immorality. Law, by definition, is an imposition. So what are we to impose? At the end of the day, the choice is between imposed sanity and what we are seeing now, which is imposed insanity. That's the choice. Right? If you don't want to impose sanity, then you just sit on your front porch and wait for the imposition of insanity because it's coming. And if someone demands, someone demands to know why I believe that we as a society are obligated to honor this particular standard, I will say something like, because God set the, the top of Mount Sinai on fire and then told Moses to tell the people that they weren't allowed to kill people. How's that for a reason? You might not like it, I'll say to the seculars, you might not like it, but I would suggest that Jehovah speaking from a mountain on fire beats five Ivy League eggheads on the Supreme Court. It's inescapable. So they say, oh, you're trying to impose. Everybody's trying to impose. 
right? Everybody's trying to impose. One time I was debating the head of the American Humanist Association, and he said that we couldn't, I, you know, here I'm appealing to Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. He said that we couldn't give credence to the Old Testament like that because the Old Testament also prohibited the eating of shellfish. I granted the point and said I acknowledged that it was true that God's people had at one time been enjoined from eating shellfish, but that he, my distinguished opponent, believed that all of us used to be shellfish. And I would suggest that his paradigm does more damage to his moral authority than my paradigm does to mine. The next, religion is upstream from culture, culture upstream from politics. The late Andrew Breitbart once said that culture is upstream from politics. He said this to help explain why conservatives can have so many people on the ground and still be outmaneuvered. Here's a, let me, this is, I've noticed this from time to time when I travel. How is it that wherever you go in the country, CNN is playing on all the televisions in all the airports? Who made that rule? Sociologists call this a preference cascade. A preference cascade happens when everybody finds out that what they're thinking in secret is what everybody else is thinking, and they say, well, change the channel. So conservatives must learn how to assume the center. But before they can do that, they must find out where the center actually is. Culture drives politics, but we have to go further upstream than that. Faith shapes culture, and culture shapes politics. Because we have allowed faith to be formally disengaged from all culture-shaping activity, relegating it to what you might privately believe about the afterlife, believing what you do behind your eyeballs and between your ears. This has not left a vacuum there. No, it has opened the way for an alien and humanistic faith to occupy that space. So the reason politics is turning out the way it is, is we have a humanistic religion, humanistic culture, and humanistic politics. That is why we're here. There's absolutely no way that you can change the humanistic politics without transforming the culture, and you can't do that unless we do something about the humanistic religion. Allow me to jump back to the previous concept, the previ a, a previous category, that of the inescapable concept. If I say that the God in the Pledge of Allegiance and that the God on our money is the God of Abraham, as I do, in God we trust, who, what God? Not the God of the agnostics, not the God of, not a generic infinite vat of tapioca pudding, but the God of Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's on your money? God the Father. And we should stop right there. Instead, when they say uh, hate is not a family value, you should stop them and not say, you shouldn't say, oh, wait, I'm not a hater. You would say, of course I'm a hater. Aren't you a hater? You don't hate things? You don't hate Nazis? Really? You don't hate the Holocaust? You don't hate racial bigotry? You don't hate... Of course you're a hater. Remember, inescapable concepts, right? What, all societies have blasphemy laws. All of them. All societies have blasphemy laws. We call them different things. We call blasphemy laws today. We call it hate speech. But we have codes. You can't say that. Sorry, you can't say that. Every society has that kind of uh, limitation. I can guarantee you that anywhere in this country, I could go down to a public meeting place, some public square, and I could get myself arrested within 15 minutes simply on the basis of what I was saying. And 
it would not be outlandish things that I would be saying. I could get myself arrested because we've got blasphemy codes. If someone says, I love, fill in the blank, we don't know if he's virtuous. If someone says, I hate, fill in the blank, we do not yet know if he is a vicious man. We need the direct object. And the objects of our hatred need to be the direct objects assigned to that role in the grammar of God. What does God say about it? Does God say that we should hate these things? Should God, does God say that we should love these things? What, is, what does John say in 1 John? Love not the world. Don't love the world. Or the things in the world. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Don't love the world. Don't love, the preacher said. Stop loving. <laughs> right, do, you see how, do you see how we've had a juke move pulled on us? They, they want to talk about virtue and vice, and they don't ever want to talk about the direct object. So, in conclusion, our God is the living God. Jesus told us that he is the resurrection and the life. We are promised that out of us will flow rivers of living water. This water is the life of the world because this water is Christ himself. This living water is flowing out of us into a world of death. It's flowing out of us into a culture of death. And this is the particular form that our insanity takes. If you reject the way of wisdom, what happens? In the eighth chapter of Proverbs, wisdom herself says that, quote, but he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. He who sins against wisdom, he who sins against me, wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. They're your direct objects, right? Hate wisdom and you love death. Wisdom says all who hate me love death. Proverbs 8.36. So all who hate wisdom love death. There is no other alternative. And when you come to the living God through his living Christ, crucified, buried, and resurrected for our sins, the alternative runs the other direction as well. All who are privileged to hate death through the cross of Jesus Christ, that's the only place where we're privileged to hate death efficaciously. We can hate death because Jesus conquered it there. All who are privileged to hate death through the cross of Jesus Christ are ushered into a love of wisdom. And this is how we recover our sanity. We do what King Nebuchadnezzar did, and we acknowledge the God of heaven. This is what true sanity is, acknowledging that God rules in the heavens, and he does as he pleases. Daniel 4, 34 through 36 says this, And at the end of the time, this is right after the episode where Nebuchadnezzar went mad for seven years, and he comes to his senses. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. That's a prayer for America. My understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, the transcendent God, the creator God. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. At the same time, when you're confessing that, at the same time, my reason returned to me. He recovered his sanity. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors, nobles, resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. So there it is. We acknowledge the God of heaven through his Son, our Lord Jesus. Our sanity will return to us, and battle will be joined. Thank you. Pastor Doug Wilson.
from the IFI Worldview Conference at Stone Church in Orland Park. Please support the work of the Illinois Family Institute and Illinois Family Action, and tell your family and friends about Illinois Family Spotlight. Until next time, stay healthy, stay active, and God bless. For more information about Illinois Family Spotlight, visit ifiaction.org. And to email questions and comments, do so at feedback at ifiaction.org.